Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. So we're recording this really right after we recorded last week's episode. And the reason I think is obvious is the two-parter. We're talking about the oral argument. The reason that this is two episodes is that we don't want to give you a three-hour podcast. Um, so we broke it up into at least two parts. We're not even sure how long this one will go. Now, there's a slight risk here, which is that it's possible that the court could issue its opinion in the case before we even have finished analyzing the oral argument. So in other words, we may be talking about the oral argument, and then the opinion may render some of these issues moot. Um, maybe they say something different than what we thought they were going to say. I still think it's worthwhile to do this. Our audience likes the clip episodes. They, they learn a lot. We learn something. And these issues are worth analyzing whether or not the opinion has been issued. And so we're going to do that. And if the opinion is issued, then we'll record another episode about the opinion and we'll maybe we'll release it early um, so that uh, you can have the benefit of Professor Mars' reflections on the opinion when it comes out. We can't predict when they're going to release the opinion uh, precisely, so we're going to go ahead with this in the meantime. Okay. So, Akil, you slept on last night's episode. <laughs> Any reconsiderations or revisions or anything? Uh, Andy, uh, I, I stand by what I said. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that was enjoyable. And that, so we're, here we go again. So we talked a lot about self-executing in the last episode and sometimes got a little carried away and talked about self-executing as if it were our execution and we're against it. Uh, in <laughs> fact, we think that the, that the Section 3 is self-executing and so did Ulysses S. Grant and so did the, uh, we believe, the uh, drafters of the 14th Amendment and the members of Congress that voted in its favor. But now we're going to move on to some of the other uh, issues, as did the court. And uh, so let's get right into it. Let's start off with some brief quotes here from Justices Alito and Thomas. Justice Alito. Is there any history of states using Section 3 as a way to bar federal office holders? Not that I'm aware, Justice Alito, because of Griffin's case. I mean, Griffin's case has been the law. I shouldn't say that it's been the law because it was just a circuit court decision, but that has been the settled understanding of Section 3 since 1870 when it was decided. Thank you. That's Justice Alito. And now Justice Thomas, later in the argument, had this question. Do you have uh, contemporaneous examples? Um, and by contemporaneous, I mean uh, shortly after the adoption of the 14th Amendment where the states uh, disqualified national candidates, not its own candidates, but national candidates. The only example I can think of, Justice Thomas, is the example of Governor uh, of, of uh, Congressman Christie, who was elected in Georgia in, I believe, 1868, and the governor of Georgia refused or, or declined to certify the results of that election because Mr. Christie was disqualified. Okay, so I think you had mentioned this case in our last episode about uh, Georgia. So what are they getting at here with these questions and your comments? Well, I think it was a wimpy answer uh, from uh, Colorado's lawyers, not the only one. Yes, we have one. Um, and, and that's actually pretty significant. Now, he, he actually could have said, he said the only, 
Well, actually, there was can be in Virginia. Now, you could say can be in Virginia is not a state because it's, it's undergoing reconstruction, but that's the general issue. You, you know, you're not going to have very many states yet because reconstruction is still going on. Um, so can that, be disqualified federal uh, office holders, not just state. No, I was, I, I was going to say it a, a different way. I was going to say, you know, Jonathan Mitchell says six times that actually is not self-executing in any way, shape, or form, not even over state officers. Okay. And Article 3 talks about state officials and electors and federal officials, senators, representatives, um, and of course, federal offices, uh, office holders, um, judges, justices, of course, the president, cabinet officers. That's our view. That's what the text really does say. So it's a little weird to slice and dice. And he says, oh, because of Griffin's case. Griffin's case actually claimed that you couldn't do anything at all without a congressional statute. And people had already done lots of things without a congressional statute. You can slice and dice things. Do you have anything that actually happened on a Tuesday, you know, with, you know, Colorado? That's just a, a kind of lawyerly trick. We have to actually think at what level of generality does the text speak and do the arguments apply? And Jonathan Mitchell's argument is, and he said it, because of Griffin's case, you don't, well, if it's because of Griffin's case, how do we explain that even before Griffin's case, exclusions were happening without a congressional statute in Virginia as well as, and then you heard the George example, and it wasn't just Christie, I think it was his successor also, I think, a fellow named Wimpy. They're not just getting at questions of self-execution here, but rather whether state office holders have the jurisdiction to apply Section 3 against federal office holders. So, or, and I think that part of this, you know, you answered, you answered part of this in our last ep- episode because it's not just a question of federal, but rather the president rather than Congress. So that, sure. because that was the whole big thing with the term limits case, right. that presidential but, but also, elections Andy, are more like state elections. Right. And uh, so anyway, but, but, but clearly their question here from justices, they, they have some point they're trying to get to, which has to, they think has to do with state officials barring federal, barring candidates from federal office or being on the ballot for federal office, um, as opposed to state officials doing something regarding state. Now you're saying, well, you know, you're, you're taking this back to self-execution, but they're, they seem to be saying that there may be some fundamental difference here. Well, remember also, we have to go back to this distinction about whether you already are in office or not. When mm-hmm. you're already in office and in a federal office, oh, it's going to be complicated for states to try to oust you. But here we're talking about actions of basically preventing you from assuming office by keeping you off the ballot or refusing to install you in office or refusing to allow you to take the oath of office or what have you. Right. But I think clearly they're trying to make some distinction between federal and state. So let's, let's, let's listen to some other quotes because Justice Kagan picks up the ball on this as well. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, it, it did come up in the First Amendment, but there's a broader principle there, and it's a broader principle about who has power over certain things in um, our federal system. And 
you know, within our federal system, states have great power over many different areas, but that there's some broader principle about that there are certain national questions um, that that's, that's that you know, you know, state where states are not the repository of authority. And I took a lot, First Amendment, not First Amendment, a lot of Anderson's reasoning is really about that. Like, what's a state doing deciding who gets to um, uh, who, who other citizens get to vote for for president? Colorado is not deciding who other states get to vote for for president. It's deciding how to assign its own electors under its Article II power. And the Constitution grants them that power. Well, but the effect of that is obvious, yes? No, Your Honor, because different states can have different procedures. Some states may allow insurrectionists to be on the ballot. They may say, we're not looking past the papers. We're not going to look into federal constitutional questions. It's the sort of, even in this election cycle, there are, there are candidates who are on the ballot in some states, even though they're not natural-born citizens, and off the ballot in other states. And that's just a function of states' power to enforce, uh, to preserve their own electors and avoid disenfranchisement of their own citizens. Thank you. So you see she's, she's going there. In our clips so far, that's the first genuinely decent answer that I've heard from Colorado's attorney. It should have been much more forceful, truthfully. Like, with all due respect, Your Honor, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, because, of course, each state decides for itself. That's the Electoral College. And, of course, this court's opinion in Anderson versus Celebrezzi did not render the Constitution itself unconstitutional. All that case was about was that even when exercising their powers to select presidential electors, there are overarching constitutional principles that apply, like free exercise of religion, freedom from race discrimination, freedom from sex discrimination, the First Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment. See the Amar brief at. That would have been an even you know, more forceful answer because we, we say all of that in our brief. But if Justice Kagan is taking a case about another Stevens opinion, about First Amendment rules applicability to, to every kind of election, state election, federal election, every, and somehow suggesting that that's an argument to undo the most basic premises of the Electoral College, that's Meshuggah, Meshuggah. I mean, it's, it's just craziness. And the idea that, I mean, there need to be very forceful pushback. Now, this is connected to the 50-state solution. The idea that Colorado is doing anything other than deciding for Colorado, that's the essence of the case. And it's not Justice Kagan. And you asked several questions, with all due respect, Justice Kagan, that seemed to suggest that it was. And that's just, that's, that's plainly wrong as a matter of Civics 101, Constitution Rock. Read the Constitution, please. Well, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. What do you, what do you think she might have been getting at that might have been, you know, less, um, you know, violative of basic principles? Uh, well, in part because she said some other things as well. I, I, my jaw was on the ground when she said some of those things. Well, so... She's not the only one that took up things like this. So we let's listen to Justices Thomas and Roberts talk a little bit about state versus federal power 
um, in the I understand that. I, I understand the states controlling state uh, elections and state positions. What we are talking about here are national candidates. Uh, the I understand. Uh, you look at Foner or Foot, Shelby Foot or McPherson. They all talk about, of course, the conflict after the Civil War. And there were people who felt very strongly about uh, retaliating against the South, the radical Republicans. Uh, but they did not think about authorizing the South to disqualify national candidates. And that's the argument you're making. And what I would like to know is, you give, is uh, do you have any examples of this? Many of those historians have filed briefs in our support in this case, making the point that the, the, the idea of the 14th Amendment was that both states and the federal government would ensure rights, and that if states failed to do so, the federal government certainly would also step in. But I think the reason why there aren't examples of states doing this is an idiosyncratic one of the fact that elections worked differently back then. States have a background power under Article Two and the 10th Amendment to run presidential elections. They didn't use that power to police ballot access until about the 1890s. And by the 1890s, everyone had received amnesty and these issues had become moot. So I don't Counsel, think the history like tells us... i sort of look at Justice Thomas's question sort of from the 30,000-foot level. I mean, the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power, right? States uh, shall not abridge privileges immunity. They won't deprive people of property without due process. Um, they won't deny uh, equal protection. And on the other hand, it augmented federal power under Section 5. Congress has the power to enforce it. So wouldn't that be the last place that you'd look for authorization for the states, including Confederate states, uh, to enforce, implicitly authorized, to enforce the presidential election process? That, that seems to be a position that is at uh, at war with the whole thrust of the 14th Amendment and very ahistorical. No, Your Honor. First, we would locate the state's authority to run presidential elections not in the 14th Amendment, but in Article 2. And that power is nearly plenary to determine Yeah, but you're relying on you, — you have no reliance on Section 3. Is that what you're saying? No, Your Honor. Certainly we have reliance on Section 3 insofar as Article 2 gives states this broad power to determine how their electors are selected, and that broad power implies the narrower power to enforce federal constitutional qualifications. Well, but the like narrower power you're looking for is the power of disqualification, right? That is a very specific power in the 14th Amendment, and you're saying that was implicitly extended to the states under a clause that doesn't address that at all. We would say that nothing in the 14th Amendment takes away from the states their broad and nearly plenary power to determine the manner of selecting their electors in the manner that they see fit. As this court said in Chiafalo, that power is nearly plenary unless something in the Constitution tells states they can't do it. And, and the structure of the 14th Amendment certainly was intended to expand federal power and certainly to restrict state power in some ways. But states are bound to enforce and apply, for example, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And so it, it's hard to see why states wouldn't be similarly bound or at least authorized. That's, that's just, a greater includes the lesser argument. The, the states have the power, the legislature has the power to choose electors, granted. Uh, but just because there's one authorized means in the Constitution to a particular end does not mean that there's any means to that end. And so I think you're taking that elector's argument and 
bringing it into Section 3, where, as the Chief Justice says, there's just no — and Justice Thomas, there's no historical evidence to support kind of the theory of Section 3 nor the overall uh, — to explain the overall structure of, of the 14th Amendment. Okay. So Justice Kavanaugh also um, chimed in there. So I, I take it you have some responses here. I do. My head is exploding. Um, I think that, and I said this in just a testimony before the United States Senate on behalf of Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. I said that the two worst cases decided in the last era were Bush versus Gore and Shelby County. And we're just hearing now, I, I feel like I've stepped through the looking glass. Bush versus Gore was a case in which the Supreme Court wrongly invalidated a state, the U.S. Supreme Court wrongly invalidated a state Supreme Court that was actually the proper decision maker given our electoral college system, which gives vast power to states under state constitutions as construed by state Supreme Courts. And Moore versus Harper properly walked back a lot of Bush versus Gore. So, but I'm hearing Bush versus Gore coming back. Now, Shelby County invalidated an act of Congress enforcing the Reconstruction Amendments when Congress was supposed to have very broad power to enforce the 14th Amendment. And the author of that heinous, in my view, opinion was the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts. So, so now when he's talking about, you know, congressional power, well, welcome to um, a board, you know, but where were you, with all due respect, Chief Justice Roberts, in Shelby County when you actually, for the first time in the modern era, you invalidated an act of Congress enforcing the Civil War Amendments because the Warren Court never did that. So now let's take it. Again, we're going to slow down the tape. Let's actually go through what was being said here. And I thought his answers were pretty good. The lawyer for Colorado, not quite as forceful as I would have hoped, but analytically correct. And Michael Mukasey said some of the same things in the debate with me, and I didn't have time to, to respond to them all in the moment, but we did in our podcast episode. Yes, your honors, the 14th Amendment was designed to restrict states in large part. It was designed to restrict states when actually um, state officials who had been insurrectionists were trying to run for state office. It was designed to restrict states in picking oath-breaking insurrectionists as electors for the presidency. It was designed to restrict states in voting for oath-breaking insurrectionist senators and representatives. Oh, and it was designed to restrict states under Article 2 in picking oath-breaking insurrectionist presidents. Yes, it was designed to restrict states, and that's actually what, what Colorado is doing, is abiding by those restrictions. It was never designed, your honors, to say that only the federal government could enforce these things because the federal government has very limited resources and power. The, the whole point was to hope that states on their own would enforce racial equality and the privileges and immunities of citizens against states. 
and here to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment with federal power available as a backstop here as elsewhere, but never as the exclusive mechanism. Now, finally, Justice Kavanaugh, with all due respect, yes, 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 we are making an argument about greater power and lesser power, words that appear in the Amar brief, which we hope your honors read. And it is our position that states actually don't have to have presidential elections at all. The, the state government could, could directly pick electors. And it has very broad power, near plenary power. And that near plenary power surely includes the right, we don't even need to argue the duty, but surely the right to enforce rules against outbreaking insurrectionists. Indeed, candidly, your honors, even if you were to strike down Colorado tomorrow, they could adopt a rule saying, fine, we don't keep Trump off the ballot because of 14th Amendment Section 3. We keep Trump off the ballot because of a state version of 14th Amendment Section 3. That's word for word 14th Amendment Section 3 that we just adopted as a state statute. And as long as that's consistent with the state constitution, as construed by the state Supreme Court under Moore versus Harper, of course we can do that. This is what lawyers call, it's a technical doctrine, and I teach it every year in Fed courts, adequate and independent state grounds. And so, Your Honor, Justice By the way, the, uh, Akil, Virginia did that in their constitution uh, in 1868. They adopted a constitution that echoed the words of Section 3 almost virtually word for word. And you and I read that constitution in preparing our brief. So, yes, state constitutions often echo language of the First Amendment, free exercise, free speech, free press, of the Fourth Amendment, no unreasonable searches and seizures, you know, of, of many other provisions, counsel, confrontation, compulsory process. So they're allowed to do all of that. But your honor, Justice Kavanaugh, with the greatest of respect, and we are glad to hear you talk about greater power and lesser power because the Amar brief does, and we commend that to you. See, he didn't say any of that, but he should have. You know, he, he mentioned, oh, Eric Foner wrote an amicus brief on, on our side. Good. Um, but there were other amicus briefs too. But you have to explain with all due respect, your honor, why the greater power here doesn't include the lesser, because typically it does. You're going to have to identify with great specificity why they could refuse to hold an election at all and just refuse to vote for Trump because they thought he was an insurrectionist, why they could pass a state statute saying insurrectionists, oath-breaking insurrectionists aren't eligible, why they could do all of that, but somehow can't do it using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment as their inspiration. And when they are using 14th Amendment Section 3 as their inspiration, they are following the deep letter and spirit um, of the Constitution, which is a restriction on them insofar, just like Section 1 is, insofar as it limits their ability to empower oath-breaking insurrectionists. It is not, with all due respect, your honors, a constitutional provision all about the right to run for president. That's not what 14th Amendment Section 3 is. Now, we are restricting people's right to run for president here in Colorado, but that right is a million miles from 14th Amendment Section 3. 14th Amendment Section 3 is not about limiting states in that way. Okay, so so he said he had a pretty good answer. 
that he could have had an even more powerful answer, you see. I noticed that uh, the Chief Justice used the language that this is the, the, that the Section 3 is about the power to disqualify. Is that a correct way to think about it? I mean, one, you know, Bowdoin Paulson uh, in their article talk about the fact that Trump is disqualified by virtue of his actions, um, that, that it's not so much that the, because I think some of this comes down to, you know, state power versus federal power. How can the state have power over federal officials, that kind of thing? Um, and perhaps that's not the right way to look at it. Well, Colorado's lawyer rightly said that power comes from Article 2. They have very, very broad power to pick presidential electors. That's where it comes from. So, um, now, and what they're doing is properly reading Article 2 in the light of the 14th Amendment, very, very sensibly and faithfully. Um, finally, if you say, oh, you can't do that for Griffin's case, Griffin's case is completely wrong because it doesn't limit its proposition to federal officers. Griffin's case says you can't do it even for state officials, you see. So now you see, Your Honor, how you know, difficult it's going to be for you to say Griffin's case, Griffin's case, Griffin's case. Because you know, even on your theory, Griffin's case is bogus. So they've been talking now about state power to bar federal officials. And you know, somewhat of a related issue to this concerned a discussion about whether the harmful, allegedly harmful nature of state-to-state variation. Let's hear what some of the justices had to say about that. Well, when you look at Section 3, the term insurrection jumps out. And the question is, the questions are, what does that mean? How do you define it? Who decides? Who decides whether someone engaged in it? What processes, as Justice Barrett alluded to, what processes are appropriate for figuring uh, out whether someone did engage in that? And that's all of uh, what Chief Justice Chase focused on a year after the 14th Amendment to say, these are difficult questions, and you look right at Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, as the Chief Justice said, and that tells you Congress has the primary role here. Uh, I think what's different is, is the processes, the definition, uh, who decides questions really jump out at you when you look at, at Section 3. Your C- response to that? Well, certainly, Justice Kavanaugh, there has to be some process for determining those questions. And, and then the question becomes, does anything in the 14th Amendment say that only Congress can create that process? And, and Section 5 very clearly is not an exclusive provision. It says Congress shall have power. But maybe and- put m- most boldly, I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, So whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan. And it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? No, Your Honor, because ultimately it's this court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. And and certainly it's not unusual that 
questions of national importance come up. Well, I suppose this court would be saying something along the lines of that a state has the power to do it. But I guess I was I was asking you to go a little bit further and saying why should that be the right rule? Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination not only for their own citizens but for the rest of the nation? Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit. But if they're going to use a federal constitutional qualification as a ballot access determinant, then it's creating a federal constitutional question that then this court decides. And other courts, other states, if, if this court affirms the decision below, determining that President Trump is ineligible to be president, other states would still have to determine what effect that would have on their own state's law and state procedure. Well, I mean, if we, if we affirmed and we said he was ineligible to be president, yes, maybe some states would say, well, you know, we're going to keep him on the ballot anyway. But I mean, really, it's going to have, as Justice Kagan said, the effect of Colorado deciding. Okay, is your head exploding again? This is where he should have been shouting 50-state solution. If you say, how can one state decide for everyone, if by that you mean the swing state, well, some states always going to be swing. It's like Yogi Bear said, gee, if we could only move first base one foot, we'd get rid of all the closed plays. Why is Justice Kennedy always deciding on the court? It's because on lots of issues, there are four to his left and four to his right. So there's always going to be a swing state, call it Florida in 2000. So that can't be, Your Honor, what you mean. But if Your Honor means that Colorado is actually deciding for anyone other than Colorado, with all due respect, Your Honor, that is emphatically not true. Colorado is only deciding for Colorado as not this court, but the Constitution itself plainly authorizes it to do. Instead, he bowed down and said, who's going to decide, oh, it's going to be this court, this court, this court. This court actually, in my view, shouldn't be central in electoral college disputes. Actually, states are supposed to be central. State constitutions are supposed to be central. State Supreme Courts are supposed to be central, whether it's the North Carolina one in Moore versus Harper or the Florida one, as it should have been in Bush versus Gore, and here the Colorado one. Congress decides things on January 6th, the one institution that the framers actually kept furthest from all of this was the court, okay? Your Honor, Colorado is deciding only for Colorado, um, and that's um, it's not deciding for anyone else, 50-state solution. And then when Justice Barrett chimes in, well, if this court says then that's going to have an effect. Your Honor, this court is only saying, we are only asking this court to say that what Colorado did on findings in Colorado with proper procedures under Colorado law, Colorado was entitled to do what Colorado did for Colorado. And it's up to other states to decide what they're going to do with that or not. So with all due respect, Your Honor, Justice Barrett, no, we reject your claim that this is going to bind other states. And he moved in that direction, but he didn't say it utterly emphatically. And that's where, yet yet another place where he, he lost the case. Well, yeah, I think Attorney Murray in this case really did go astray because he started saying, well, this court will decide that, uh, that Trump engaged in insurrection. This court will decide that Trump is ineligible for president. That's not, that's not the, the question before them. 
really. Right, right, right. If they did right. decide so, that, then maybe it would be for every state, but, well, you know, and who knows, you know, then it'd be interesting because states may justifiably feel that they don't have the, that the court is stepping out beyond its authority. But anyway. Um, uh, we're going to come back to this issue, um, I think, a little bit later. Yes, ver- episode, very soon. There's a, there's a technical term. Right, that's next. I, I, get to, mm-hmm. I get to play the you know, law professor. It's about offensive non-mutual collateral estoppel, and I promise you, audience, in a few minutes, you'll know what that means. Okay. But before we get there, and we are getting there, because it's a natural corollary from this discussion, unfortunately, this issue was not, was not limited to this one clip. So let's listen to some other uh, things that are related. Mr. Murray, can I, oh, um, can I just uh, ask you about something just, uh, Justice Kagan brought up earlier, which is the concern about uniformity um, and the lack thereof uh, if states are permitted to enforce Section 3 in presidential elections. And I, I guess I didn't really understand your argument or your response to her about that. Well, certainly, if Congress is concerned about uniformity, they can provide for legislation, and they can preempt state legislation. Yes, but you say that's not necessary. But it's not necessary. In the absence of federal enforcement legislation, these questions come up to this court in the same way that other federal questions come up to this court, which is that a state adjudicates them. If the state hasn't provided sufficient process to comport with due process, a notice, an opportunity to be heard, one can make those challenges. But assuming, as here, we have a full evidentiary record, an opportunity to present evidence. No, I, under- I understand that we could resolve it so that we have a uniform, ultimate ruling on it. I guess my question is why the framers would have designed a system that would could result in interim disuniformity in this way, where we have elections pending and different states suddenly saying, you're eligible, you're not, on the basis of this kind of thing. Well, what they were concerned most about was ensuring that insurrectionists and rebels don't hold office. And so once one understands the sort of imperative that they had to ensure that oathbreakers wouldn't take office, it would be a little bit odd to say that states can't enforce it, that only the federal government can enforce it, and that Congress can essentially rip the heart out of Section 3 by a simple majority just by failing to pass enforcement legislation. Federalism creates redundancy. And here, the fact that states have the ability to enforce it as well, absent federal preemption, provides an additional layer of safeguards around what really Section 3... Yeah. So Justice Jackson weighs in there. Yeah. I give the attorney at best a C plus, and in part because Justice Jackson didn't hear the right answer to, to what he said earlier, and he didn't scream the right answer here. 50-state solution, electoral college. What are you talking about with all due respect, Justice Jackson? Abraham Lincoln was on the ballot in some states and not in others. Ralph Nader was on the ballot in some states and not in others, and not just in 2000, but 2004. We could talk about Gary Johnson. That's how it works. And that's the obvious backdrop with all due respect, Justice Jackson. Of course they would have been aware of that in drafting the 14th Amendment because they had just lived through the election of 1860 where Abraham Lincoln wasn't on the ballot in any state south of Virginia. So of course they're aware that that's how it works. And if you can keep people off the ballot because they don't have enough signatures, because they don't have enough political support, 
Well, why can't you keep them off the ballot if you, after proper procedures, determine that they're oath-breaking insurrectionists? And in, in so doing, you're actually completely in the spirit of that provision, which limits states. Yes, it limits states by saying states aren't supposed to be supporting oath-breaking insurrectionists for state officials, for senators, for representatives, yes, for the presidency, also, of course, for presidential electors. It's limiting states. And different states may actually cash that out in somewhat different ways. Congress can always jump in and create a a higher floor, because maybe some states are doing it and other states aren't, and you might need Congress to jump in. That's what Section 5 is all about, to create a a strong floor. But that floor, you know, unless Congress is explicit, Justice Jackson should never be implicitly construed as a ceiling. And by the way, my friend, Jonathan Mitchell, of course, that's what opposing counsel, that's how they refer to each other. My friend, Jonathan Mitchell says, there's implied preemption here. Your honors, that's not how we generally do things. I appeal to the general course of this court's jurisprudence, where implied preemption has often been strongly disfavored absent some very strong indication in the legislative history and structure and purpose, which is absent here. Okay, now Chief Justice Roberts uh, chimes in on this with another argument in favor of the notion that uh, it's important that states be uniform. So what do you do with the, what I would seem to me to be plain consequences of your position? If Colorado's uh, position is upheld, surely there will be disqualification proceedings on the other side, and some of those will succeed. Some of them will have different standards of proof. Some of them will have uh, uh, different rules about uh, evidence. Maybe the Senate report won't be accepted in others because it's hearsay. Uh, Maybe it's beyond a reasonable doubt, whatever. In very quick order, I would expect, um, although my predictions have never been correct, uh, I would expect that... uh, you know, a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, the, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. Well, certainly, Your Honor, the fact that there are potential frivolous applications of a constitutional provision isn't a reason— Well, no, hold on. I mean, you might think they're frivolous, but probably the people who are bringing them may not think they're frivolous. Um, insurrection is a broad, uh, broad term. And if there's some debate about it, I suppose that will go into the uh, decision. And then eventually what we would be deciding, uh, whether uh, there was an insurrection when one president did something as opposed to when somebody else did something else. And what do we do? Do we wait until near the time of uh, uh, counting the ballots and sort of go through which states uh, are valid and which states aren't? Let me just say before you weigh in here that Tim Snyder is having a fit right now because he's saying that when you, you know, you grant the, the tyrant, you, you don't engage in your own democratic process because you're worried that the tyrant will retaliate with an undemocratic process that you've already lost. The correct answer to that question is threefold. States can, can today, if they want, without, regardless of what this court rules in this case, decide that they're going to keep people off the ballot for almost any reason. They're allowed to do that. They're allowed to pick electors themselves. And Justice Alito, in fact, asked the question about whether states could pick electors themselves. And the answer is, yes, of course they can. 
So that can happen today. What keeps that in check? State constitutions as construed by state Supreme Courts per your honor's own ruling, Chief Justice Roberts, may it please the court with all due respect, in Moore versus Harper. That's why that was such an important decision. It's not actually to be decided basically by this court because the Electoral College is not a national system. It's a 50-state system. It's a federal system, which ultimately privileges state constitutions as construed by state courts as understood by Moore versus Harper. And Moore reserved a narrow role for this court to monitor state Supreme Courts. And that's the system we have, and that's the sensible one. And your honors decision in Moore versus Harper is the answer to your honors own question. So those are the first two things I, I say. States can do can play tit for tat or double tit or triple tit for tat, regardless of what this court decides. Welcome to a polarized America. And that was true in the 1850s with Lincoln not being on the ballot in some states and on the ballot in other states. And, and if the politics are polarized today in the way they were in the 1850s, that could happen no matter what. Second, what mainly keeps the, the, the system in balance are state constitutions as construed by state Supreme Courts under Moore versus Harper, with this court reserving for itself properly, you know, a narrow but critical oversight role. Third, um, with all due respect, Your Honor, Chief Justice Roberts, what world are you living in when you say, wow, it's a daunting prospect that a presidential election could come down to just a handful of states? That, that's our world. Regardless of whether state legislatures pick or the people pick, most of the states are deeply red or deeply blue. There are only five or six swing states. And, and again, that's going to be true whether we talk about voters picking or lawmakers picking. It's going to come down to Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Virginia and North Carolina and Arizona and Georgia, and New Hampshire, and Nevada, and that's pretty actually expansive, probably a subset of those. But I, I may have just mentioned, Your Honor, eight states, something like that. It's not going to be decided. You know, the election is not going to be a swing election, a close election in Texas on the one hand, or California on the other. We are already in that world, with all due respect. That's daunting it may be, but, but welcome to the Electoral College. Again, I think the, the argument that he's making could be said, well, we're not, you know, the state shouldn't be able to enforce it because other states might retaliate. But if someone infringes the, the law, someone, you know, violates the Constitution, that's not a, a reason to not enforce the Constitution. So, I mean, ultimately, we, I think we have to depend on, on good actors. I mean, the system will fail if everyone acts in bad faith. You have said that state Supreme Courts play an important role. If we look at the 2020 election, there were a lot of cases, electoral cases, that went up, uh, that came before state Supreme Courts, some of them deeply read. And most of the time, the state Supreme Courts did the right thing in these cases. And they're politically accountable. So just so the best response to Chief Justice Roberts was Chief Justice Roberts 
With all due respect, Your Honor, I, I just urge you to reread Moore versus your own landmark decision in Moore versus Harper. Okay, so now we get to the promised highly technical legal point, which was uh, covered in Law and Order um, in an interesting episode. So this is introduced by Justice Alito relatively early on, and then it's echoed later. So I'm going to play uh, these clips for you. The consequences of what the Colorado Supreme Court did, uh, some people claim, would be quite severe. Uh, Would it not permit, uh, would it not lead to the possibility that other states would say, using their choice of law rules and their rules on on, uh, collateral estoppel, that there's non-mutual collateral estoppel against former President Trump. And so the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court could effectively decide this question for many other states, perhaps all other states. Could it not lead to that consequence? I don't think so, because Colorado law does not recognize non-mutual collateral estoppel. And I believe the preclusive effect of the decision would be determined by Colorado law rather than the law of another state. But I think your question, Justice Alito, gives rise to an even greater concern. Because if this decision does not have preclusive effect in other lawsuits, it opens the possibility that a different factual record could be developed in some of the litigation that occurs in other states. And different factual findings could be entered by state trial court judges. They might conclude, as a matter of fact, that President Trump did not have any intent to engage in incitement or make some other finding that differs from what this trial court judge found. Yeah, exactly. So this, this, in this decision, the, the trial court in Colorado thought that it was uh, proper to admit the January 6th report, and it also admitted the testimony of an expert mm-hmm. who testified about the meaning of certain words and phrases to people who communicate with and among extremists, right? Uh, another another state court could reach an opposite conclusion on both of those questions. Certainly. Other states could conclude that the January 6th report is an admissible hearsay. They might also conclude that statements within the January 6th report were hearsay, even if the report itself is not. And they could certainly reach a different conclusion with respect to the expert testimony of Professor Simi. Perhaps in another state we would have time to produce our own sociology expert who would contradict Professor Simi. Should should these considerations be dismissed as simply consequentialist arguments, or do they support a structural argument that supports the position that you're taking here? So Jonathan Mitchell is a very impressive technical lawyer, and he actually understands some of the technical details of non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel. No, what's that all about? The basic point is that when A sues B and B loses, now in some other adjudication, can C bring a lawsuit against B and say, well, on the same issue, it's, a, it's a, let's say, a defective pharmaceutical or something like that. A sues the pharmaceutical company and wins. Let's say the pharmaceutical company is Eli Lilly. Well, once A wins can against B, Eli Lilly, can some other person, C, say, Actually, I don't want to have to relitigate whether Eli Lilly was negligent and, and, and all the rest. That's already been decided. Eli Lilly is stopped. Eli Lilly is collaterally stopped from saying we weren't negligent. And that's, that's collateral estoppel. It's non-mutual because if Eli Lilly had won against the first plaintiff, 
that still wouldn't bar the second plaintiff from suing. So there's an asymmetry there. You know, heads I you know, win, tails let's play again, something like that. What Justice Alito was asking, and I personally think he's just a really great lawyer, but that was a great technical question. Mitchell said a couple of things. One, Colorado itself doesn't have that rule, okay? And so other states under a statute called 1738 wouldn't be bound to give the Colorado judgment against Trump more effect than Colorado itself would give, which is not much. So there's that. More broadly, he asked the, the lawyer for, for Trump that the you know, really, ideally, Murray should have have wanted to address that, saying other states could choose to follow Colorado, but only if they chose to. They're not bound to, not just because, and you might say, well, you know, okay, Colorado, they're not bound to because 1738 doesn't bind them because Colorado itself limits the effect of that decision when it comes to other litigants. Okay, but fine. Now, the next case is Michigan says he's off the ballot because of Section 3, and they have a broader rule of collateral estoppel, and now said, wouldn't 1738 kick in, and, and Michigan is deciding for the whole country. And if it were, then Justice Kagan would have a point. Then Justice Jackson would have a point. Actually, they're making the same point about okay. one state deciding for the nation. Right. And the answer is no one state is deciding for one state because other states can choose to follow and aren't obliged to follow. Now, in Colorado, they have that choice because Colorado itself limits the preclusive effect. But what happens if, if another early state does it? The answer is that it would be unfair under the rules of collateral estoppel to, for example, bind the, it's not just about Trump. Trump lost. And you could say, well, he had every opportunity to litigate in Colorado. And if he didn't make the case, that's shame on him. But there's still a couple of considerations. One, other states are permitted to have much more demanding standards of proof if they want. Fine. He did it by more likely than not standard, but not by clear and convincing. And that's our standard. And in Missouri or whatever, not by a reasonable doubt, which is our standard in, say, Michigan. So there's that. Oh, we have the same standard of proof, but we actually have different rules of evidence about hearsay and all the rest. So, so really, we don't think that earlier adjudication is telling us what we need to know, given our rules. Most importantly of all, it's not just about Trump, you know, whether, fairness to Trump, that he lost in Colorado, so he can't complain very much, and he had every opportunity and due process and all the rest. It's about fairness to the voters in other states, and they weren't represented at all in Colorado. And under the rules of collateral estoppel, and I could give you cases, there's, for example, a case called Mendoza. These are extremely relevant considerations. So all this court need do in today's case, Your Honor, all you need do, Justice Alito, is simply to make clear under the 50-state solution that other states would not be bound by Colorado. And you, you, you can clearly do that in this case saying above and beyond 1738, we hereby hold that other states are not bound because their voters would be implicated and their voters weren't represented. And that is the answer to Justice Kagan's concern 
Justice Jackson's concern. Now, in fact, because the question that Justice Alito asked wasn't asked of Colorado's lawyer, but of, of Trump's lawyer, we didn't quite get that development. But Jonathan Mitchell gave a very impressive technical answer, and it was candid because he actually said, well, in Colorado, that's probably not going to be the issue. It doesn't mean that other states can't take notice of these proceedings. So, for example, if, if they choose, for and, example, and, and the in, whole point in, is, for example, in in Colorado, as Justice Alito noted, I mean, this is not you know a court, but they they took notice of January sixth commission, and in Maine, they, the Secretary right, of State to. took took notice of Colorado's findings, but not because she had to, but because right. she chose to. Exactly, and as long as each state can choose. And ultimately, it's the state Supreme Court that monitors the thing. Welcome to the electoral cause system. That's perfectly okay. You've now earned your CLE. Now go get it. <laughs> and the way that you go get it is by going to podcast.njsba.com, which is the website of the New Jersey State Bar Association. But you don't have to be in New Jersey. You can also be in Pennsylvania or in New York, and you'll get your CLE credit directly from this procedure. If you're in other states, you can also get it, but you'll need to contact your state bar association to see how to take advantage of the reciprocity that most states have with the New Jersey State Bar Association. Anyway, when you get to that website, podcast.njsba.com, you fill out the form, you enter the code, and this week the code is ARGUMENT. Okay. And again, we don't choose these codes to be somehow symbolic of the of the episode. We get them, you know, of, of weeks ahead of time from the State Bar Association. So uh, it's just a coincidence that this is indeed about an argument. We're not quite done with the discussion of, of collateral stop. Now, of course, I, we mentioned earlier that um, that Attorney Murray didn't get a, a chance to respond, that it was Attorney Mitchell responding to Justice Alito on collateral estoppel. In fact, it does come up again, although it's not Attorney Murray, it's the attorney Shannon Stevenson, who's uh, counsel for the Secretary of State of Colorado. Suppose a state that does recognize non-mutual collateral estoppel makes a determination using whatever procedures it decides to adopt that a particular candidate is an insurrectionist. Could that have a cascading effect? And so the decision by a court in one state, the decision by a single judge whose factual findings are given deference, maybe an elected uh, trial judge, would have potentially an enormous effect on the candidates who run for president across the country. Is that something we should be concerned about? Um, I think you should be concerned about it, Your Honor, but I think the concern is not as high as maybe it's made out to be in, in particularly some of the amicus briefs. And again, under Article 2, there is a huge amount of disparity in candidates that end up on the ballot on di- in different states in every election. Um, just this election, there's a candidate who Colorado excluded from the primary ballot who is on the ballot um, in other states, even though he is not a natural-born citizen. And that's just a, that's a feature of our process. It's not a bug. That was a good answer. And even and, and she's moving in the direction of 50-state solution and explaining all that. That was a pretty good answer. would have been even better if she had said, and we invite this court today, if it's so inclined, to make clear that no other state would be bound by Colorado's determination. Not merely because 1738 doesn't apply because Colorado has narrow rules 
of collateral estoppel, but more generally because elections aren't just about candidates, they're about voters, and the voters of other states were not represented in this Colorado proceeding, and because this court's own decisions on collateral estoppel have often identified certain important public policy considerations. See the Mendoza case as counseling for very narrow rules of collateral estoppel. This would not prohibit other states from choosing to follow Colorado's lead if they were so inclined, but we invite this court to make emphatically clear to the world that other states are not obliged to follow Colorado's lead. And that, Your Honor, is in the deepest tradition of the structure of the Electoral College itself. Okay, so now we come to the question of that <laughs> we had hoped to, <laughs> I at least had hoped to not have to look at the rest of my life, which is, um, is the president an officer and is the presidency an office? Um, and is the oath an oath under the United States? Is it to support the, con- you know, this kind of, this kind of stuff? And you can see that I personally have a bit of disdain for this, but so what? A couple of justices appeared to take it seriously, even if the majority of the court perhaps didn't. So we're going to qu- play some quotes for you on this. Um, first of all, we have just a brief comment from uh, Justice Kagan on this matter. Justice Kagan? And if I could just understand, I mean, given that you say you don't have a lot of evidence that uh, the founding generation or the generation that we're looking at is really thinking about office versus officer of the mm-hmm. United States, I mean, it, it, it would uh, suggest that we should ask, but w- 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 is that a rule, a sensible one? You know, if they had thought about it, what reason would they have given for that rule? And it does seem as though there, uh, there's no particular reason, and you can think of lots of reasons for the contrary, right. to say that the only people who have engaged in insurrection who are not disqualified from office are um, presidents who have not held high office before. Why would that rule exist? Yeah. I don't think there is a good rationale given that this was compromised legislation. And sometimes this happens with statutory compromises and even constitutional compromises. There's an agreed-upon set of words that can pass both houses of Congress. But different legislators may have had goals and motivations. They didn't all get their way. In a compromise, everyone goes away miserable. But this was the text that was settled upon. And it does seem odd that President Trump would fall through the cracks, in a sense. But if officer of the United States means appointed officials, there's just no way he can be covered under Section 3. The court would have to reject our officer argument to get to that point. And is there any better reason, if you go um, to the office argument, that Justice Jackson was suggesting, is there any better reason for saying that an insurrectionist cannot hold the whole panoply of offices in the United States, but we're perfectly fine with that insurrectionist being president? I think that's an even tougher argument for us to make as a policy matter, because one would think of all offices, the presidency would be the one you'd want to keep out the Confederate insurrectionist. That's the commander-in-chief of the army. So, again, that's why we're leaning more on the officer of argument than the office under. We're not conceding office under but we definitely have the stronger textual case and structural case on officer of the United States. Thank you. So Justice Kagan did echo a number of the comments that you've made over the, over the past months. She makes reference to Justice Jackson. We'll get to that. But anyway, your initial reaction here. There's candor in Jonathan Mitchell's concession that it makes no sense. He himself is a Supreme Court 
former clerk. He clerked for Justice Scalia, and he gave you a Scalia answer, which is, oh, in these statutes, sometimes it's just a big stinking compromise and nothing makes sense and just enforce the words literalistically, even if they don't make sense, because welcome to compromise. Justice Kagan, who also clerked for the Supreme Court way back when, has been quite influenced by Justice Scalia in when it comes to statutory interpretation. So he gave actually an answer that she might have found at least plausible. It's a very bad way to construe constitutions, even if it's actually a sensible way to construe statutes, which are big stinky compromises. Constitutional provisions are often about coherent principles. And in any event, we should try to presume that. Now, it's utterly clear from the text of the Constitution itself that the presidency is an office. I, Donald J. Trump, do solemnly swear they faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. You know, there's no ambiguity about that whatsoever. So now he has to say, oh, maybe it's an office, but he's not an office, sir, because they're these two different uh, uh, words in the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Well, an office, someone who holds an office but it's not an officer, that's kind of weird. But in any event, Let's actually talk about words in the Constitution, like commander. You know, if, if it's all about the er, commander-in-chief, well, of course, he's an officer because he's a commander-in-chief. Now, you can say, well, Akil just says that. Let's look at what Alexander Hamilton says. In the locus classicus of executive power, his exposition of the presidency in the Federalist Number no. 69, it's his first essay on the presidency, and it's absolutely central. Everyone at the time of the 14th Amendment would know this too, and they would know it's Hamilton, because sometimes they say, oh, officers, oh, they all have to be appointed. And you can't have an elected officer because officers under the appointments clause have to be elected. Well, all I can say is, here's what Alexander Hamilton said in the Federal 69. The president of the United States would be an officer elected by the people for four years. Um, and he's contradistinguishing that from the king of Great Britain, who is a perpetual and hereditary prince. Okay, so that's just the text in history. It makes no sense to try to distinguish between office and officer, and he is an officer, and he is a commander, and everyone knows that, and there are hundreds of references to that. But now let's focus on the 14th Amendment itself. In the 14th Amendment itself, uh, Section 3, central to what they're trying to do is to prevent Jefferson Davis from becoming president again. And he concedes, oh, there, uh, there, Mitchell does in candor concede, we didn't push the office um, argument very much that the presidency is a barred office because there's, he says there's some legislative, there's some history, there's lots. And that is the amicus brief filed by Pulitzer and Bancroft prize-winning historians, former president of Harvard University, great historian Drew Gilpin Faust and David Blight and John Witt and Jill Lepore. Nothing could be more clear. Okay, and there's also this exchange between Reverend Johnson and Lot Morrill. Maybe we'll kind of come back to that with Justice Jackson. So, um, but what you heard in Jonathan Mitchell was a certain Scalia move. Okay, maybe it doesn't make sense, but who cares? And that just gives justices discretion to do you know, completely preposterous things. And they use it selectively when they don't like something. They use it politically. So that's judging without judgment. And I'm not for it. Okay, right. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think this distinction between the, the Constitution and statutes is, is certainly relevant. Even if it were a statute, I think it would be pretty clear. But anyway, 
Okay. And we'll, and, and, we'll, and we'll get to that maybe when we talk about Justice Gorsuch. Right. So now we have, as you said, J- Justice Kagan alludes to Justice Jackson. So Justice Kagan says, well, you know, what possible rationale could there be? And now Justice Jackson purports to uh, offer one, I think. Justice Jackson? to um, whether the presidency is one of the barred offices. I I guess I'm a little surprised at your response to Justice Kagan because I thought that the history of the 14th Amendment actually provides the reason for why the presidency may not be included. And by that I mean um, I didn't see any evidence that the presidency was top of mind for the framers when they were drafting uh, Section 3 because they were actually dealing with a different issue. Um, The pressing concern, at least as I see the historical record, was actually what was going on at lower levels of the government. The possible infiltration and embedding of insurrectionists into the state government apparatus and the real risk that former Confederates might return to power in the South via state-level elections, either in local offices or as representatives of uh, the states in Congress. And that's a very different lens. If your concern is trying to make sure that these people don't come back through the state apparatus and control the government in that direction, seems to me very different than the worry that an insurrectionist will seize control of the entire national government through the presidency. And so I just am surprised that you would, given the text of this, the, the provision and the historical context that seems to demonstrate that their concern or their focus was not about the presidency. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand why you're giving that argument up. There, there is some evidence to suggest that. Uh, is there any but evidence to suggest that the presidency was what they were focused on? There is some evidence of that. There were people saying we don't want Jefferson Davis to be elected president. And there was also one of the drafts of Section 3 specifically mentioned the presidency and the vice presidency. But it- okay. Good for Jonathan Mitchell. Some evidence maybe understates it. As for Justice Jackson, I love that she cares about the history. And I said originalism is really hard to do. So A for effort, A for earnestness, F for actual correctness. The head explodes once again. Here's what we said in our amicus brief. And then I'll tell you why we didn't actually have lots of footnotes and documentation. But in our amicus brief, we say, myriad politicians and publishers expressly declared that Section 3 would bar oath-breaking insurrectionists such as Jefferson Davis from the presidency, absent amnesty. Indeed, this was a central aim of the section. Now, why didn't we have a footnote there? Because the footnote would have been to a distinguished amicus brief that had not yet been filed by the president of Harvard University, former president Drew Gibbon Faust, and these prize-winning historians, David Blight, Jill Lepore, John Witt. Eric Foner says the same thing. You see, these are the real historians. Justice Jackson has quite evidently read one article by Kurt Lash, which is not to be relied on. Just ridiculous things again and again and again. So I assert with every ounce of my own authority as an historian and as a scholar, it was centrally 
about uh, preventing people like Jeff Davis and Clement Vlandingham, a copperhead, from the presidency. Now, that was an historical claim I made. Uh, who agrees with me other than the ones I just mentioned? Oh, Mark Graber says there are dozens of examples, and so does Gerard Magliacca. And, but now let me take a st step back. I can prove this in the text itself because it talks about presidential electors. So what are you, as, as one of the barred offices, what are you talking about, Justice Jackson? How could you think that? Because if, if it's not about the presidency, why are they worried about presidential electors? Because presidential electors have one and only one purpose. The only thing that they do is vote for president. So of course it's about the presidency. And then you would, might say, oh, but then why didn't they say the presidency? Oh my God, they did. Because office and officers include the presidency and presidents, you know, and, and there was an exchange on the floor of the Senate on just this issue. And Senator Reverdy Johnson says, why didn't you mention the presidency? And they said, you know, we did in the word office. And then he says, oh, doubtless you're right. Never mind. Yes, and, and there actually is an exchange between Justice Jackson and Attorney Murray on this, which and I'm going to play that clip for you in a minute. But just one other point about this notion that that the framers of the 14th Amendment were only concerned about state governments. They didn't care. So, you know, her point there was not, I think, not only the presidency, but presumably if they only cared about state governments, they also wouldn't care about Congress, about getting people elected to Congress. And obviously, of course, first of all, the 14th Amendment expressly, you know, bans oath-breaking insurrectionists from Congress. But from the Senate and, and the House of Representatives, exactly yes. so. And in addition, you know, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment is all about Confederate debt and how they, Jack Balkan told us, how they were very concerned that they didn't want advocates for the for the Confederacy in Congress bargaining various uh, other legislation uh, in such a way that the Confederate debt would be forgiven. So obviously they were concerned about Congress. That couldn't be done at the state level. So of course they were concerned about Congress. Andy, brilliant point. You just made a structural point. Look at section four of the 14th Amendment. It's all about concern about Congress falling into the wrong hands. So I made some textual points, and, and you did too. It says presidential electors. That's all they do is, you know, pick a national office at the presidency. It says senators and representatives. Those are national positions. So that's text. That's structure. Now, on history, I said, everyone acknowledges, everyone, Justice Jackson, the, the serious historians, the prize-winning historians all acknowledge it's about the presidency. Again, Drew Gilpin Faust, John Witt, David Blight, Jill Lepore, Eric Foner. Oh my gosh. Not to mention the ones whom we've brought on, like Gerard Magliaca, Mark Graber. But now let me read you just one more passage. We've talked about this um, passage before. It's about Fatty Stevens. It's just a point of history. It's about an earlier version of Section 3, and this goes back to the Mukasey debate. Here's what he says. Without, this is Thaddeus Stevens, who is the majority leader of the House of Representatives. He's one of the two or three most important people on Capitol Hill. Without Section 3, this was an earlier version of Section 3, 
The amendment amounts to nothing. I do not care the snap of my finger, whether it be passed or not, if that be stricken out. Before another Congress shall have been assembled here, and before the rest of the amendment can be carried into full effect, there will be no friends of the union left on this side of the House to carry it out. The House will be filled with yelling secessionists and hissing copperheads. Give us the third section or give us nothing. <laughs> oh my gosh, Justice Jackson, you, you couldn't be wronger. I, I so admire your earnest desire to be a faithful originalist, and it's hard to do. And you haven't been doing this every day of your life for the last 30 years. But let me tell you, with all due respect, what you just said, again, made my head explode because it's so not true. And I know Kurt Lash has said other things. He's my student, and he is wrong. He's wrong so many different ways. And, and if you're going to do serious originalism, at the very least, make sure you've read his critics, because some law clerk perhaps fed you this one article and you just bought it hook, line, and sinker, but this is important. And and I beg you, if, if, if you're out there or if any clerks, you know, are out there, read these other, you know, critiques because you, you wouldn't say after reading these critiques, I believe, what you just said. There's an outstanding refutation of Lash by actually my great team of student researchers, and it's in the ball of conspiracy. Urge everyone in the audience to read it, urge Justice Jackson's law clerks to read it and all the other law clerks, and urge Justice Jackson and all the justices to read it. We'll post that on our show notes as well for this episode. Okay, well, so now Justice Jackson um, comes back to this, as I mentioned, in an exchange with Attorney Murray on this question about the Reverdy Johnson exchange. And uh, here's what she has to say on that. What is very clear from the history is, is that the framers were concerned about charismatic rebels who might rise through the ranks up to and including the presidency of the United States. But then why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3? The thing that really is troubling to me is I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred, and president is not there. And so I guess that just makes me worry that maybe they weren't focusing on the president and, for example, the fact that electors of vice president and president are there suggests that really what they thought was if we're worried about the charismatic person, we're going to bar insurrectionist electors, and therefore that person is never going to rise. This came up in the debates in Congress over Section 3, where uh, Reverdy Johnson said, why haven't you included president and vice president in the language? And Senator Morrill responds, we have. Look at the language, any office under the United States. Yes, but doesn't that at least suggest ambiguity? And this sort of ties into Justice Kavanaugh's point. In other words, we had a, a person right there at the time saying what I'm saying. The, the language here doesn't seem to include president. Why is that? And so if there's an ambiguity, why would we construe it to, as Justice Kavanaugh pointed out, uh, against democracy? Well, Reverdy Johnson came back and agreed with that reading. Any office is clear. The Constitution says about 20 times. No, I don't, I'm not going to that. So let me, let, me, let me just say, you, so your point is that, it's, that there's no ambiguity. 
it, with, with, with having a list and not having president in it, with having a history that suggests that they were really focused on local concerns in the South, um, with this conversation where the legislators actually discussed what looked like an ambiguity. You're saying there is no amb- uh, ambiguity in Section 3? Let me take the point specifically about electors and senators, if I might, because I think that's yes. important. Presidential electors were not covered because they don't hold an office. They vote. Uh, and this no, I'm talking decision, about the barred office part of it, this. Exactly. So the right? barred office is, if you want to ex- include everybody, first you have to specify presidential electors because they're not offices, so they wouldn't fall under any office. Second of all, senators and representatives don't hold office either. The Constitution tells us that under the incompatibility clause and refers to them as holding seats, not offices. And so you want to make sure that there's no doubt that senators and representatives are covered, given that the Constitution suggests otherwise, you have to include them. The Constitution says the presidency holds an office, as do members of this court. And so other high offices, the president, vice president, members of this court. Okay. So everything that you heard from Justice Jackson comes from Kurt Lash, and it's all wrong, analytically and historically. Let's just go through it. It's just, it just is. And Kurt, to repeat, is my student and friend, but Now this is for all the marbles and the justice on the Supreme Court is, if I were being ungenerous, you know, spouting nonsense. They weren't concerned about the presidency. Oh, no, they were because they actually had the presidential electors clause. Oh, but, but that solved the problem because insurrectionists can't be electors, so you won't have an insurrectionist president. Well, as we explained on at least two occasions previous in this podcast, of course you can have insurrectionist electors, just not oath-breaking insurrectionist electors. So that's not going to solve the problem, but it does prove that they were focused on the presidency because that's the only thing that electors do. And then she says, oh, but there's at least some ambiguity. You know, Reverdy Johnson was confused. Reverdy Johnson was confused until someone said, it says office. And then he said, oh, never mind, my mistake. And he didn't just say, I'm my mistake. He said, I doubt not, or doubtless, I am wrong. Doubtless, okay? So, and then you say, well, then why didn't they say president? Because a president is an office. A president is an officer. The presidency is an office. Time out of mind. And the point is, they said that dozens of, not once or twice, Dozens of times in the ratification process, politicians and and publishers said it's about preventing Jefferson Davis from holding the presidency. And no one, not one person ever, ever, ever said the contrary. And you don't have to just believe me. Read the the Pulitzer and Bancroft Prize winning historians because Kurt Lash is not anything like that. Kurt Lash... You can believe Eric Foner and Drew Gilpin Faust and John Witt and David Blight and Jill Lepore and Akhil Amar and Mark Graber and Gerard Maclaka and dozens more folks on one side. Okay? At the very least, you need to know, Justice Jackson, that that's what has been said. So that's where historically what you're saying is not true. But Analytically, just looking at the words, office is generic, it covers everyone. 
officer is generic. It covers everyone, including the presidency and the president. And presidential electors itself proves that they're worried about the presidency. And it can't be that that solves the problem in and of itself. Because you see, you're saying inconsistent things. They weren't worried about the presidency and they were worried about the presidency. Electors prove they were, and that doesn't solve the problem because insurrectionists are allowed to be electors as long as they're not oath-breaking insurrectionists. Yeah, I think, you know, this notion that there's ambiguity because Reverdy Johnson, you know, listened to a long passage and then said, oh, you didn't say president, and then is, is really refuted because the moment he hears, oh, we said officer, or we said office. Yes. He says, oh, I... You know, I doubt not. So, so right. that's it. I mean, so he but, understands but, 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 and, that the president is an officer. He understands right. that because that's how the his mishearing is corrected. Right. You reminded me that there's one other point that I didn't um, pick up. What about democracy? And it's an important point. But as we emphasized from the beginning of our amicus brief to the end, as the great Larry Tribe emphasized, democracy is on both sides here, because you need to understand how democracies end. Read Tim Snyder's brief about how democracies end. They lived through all of this, um, um, they being the Reconstruction generation. Um, So now we actually need to take seriously what they really said. And there wasn't ambiguity, with all due respect, once you actually understand the historical materials. Um, And to repeat, democracies on both sides. And we'll come back to democracy because they came back to it, and uh, and Attorney Murray had an answer on that, which we'll which we'll review. But we're not quite done with office and officer because Justice Gorsuch isn't quite done with it. So he had a, a couple of discussions of it. So here's Justice Gorsuch. Mr. Mitchell, yes. stepping back on this, mm-hmm. a, a lot hinges on the difference between, in your argument, between the term office an officer. Yes. And I, I guess I'm wondering, what theory do you have from an original understanding or a textualist perspective, mm-hmm. why those two terms so closely related would carry such different weight? Because it's clear from the constitutional text that there are officers that do not hold offices under the United States. For example, the Speaker of the House and the President pro tempore, they're described as officers in Article I who are chosen by the legislature. They also have to be officers if they're able to be covered by the Presidential Succession Act, because under the Constitution, only officers can serve when there's a vacancy in both the presidency and the vice presidency. So they're officers, but they're not offices under the United States because of the incompatibility clause, which says that if you're a member of Congress, you cannot simultaneously hold an office under the United States. So that provision of the Constitution clearly demonstrates that Members of Congress can't hold offices. I, I appreciate that yes. response. Is, is there anything in the original drafting, history, discussion that you think illuminates why that distinction would carry such profound not, weight? Not of which we're aware. So these are textual inferences that we're drawing yeah. from constitutional structure, intratextualist analysis. Yeah. But we aren't relying necessarily on the thought processes of the people who drafted these provisions because... They're unknowable, but even if they were knowable, we're not sure they would be relevant in any event, because this language, especially in Section 3, 
was enacted as a compromise. There were certainly radical Republicans who wanted to go much further. If you look at some of the earlier drafts that were proposed, some people wanted to ban all insurrectionists from holding office, regardless of whether they previously swore an oath. Some people wanted to go further and ban them even from voting. Thank and you. Okay, Akil, your comments here. Justice Gorsuch here is asking the right question. What sense does it make to make the, um, to make these fine distinctions between officer and office and, and the rest? And at the end of the day, I think Jonathan Mitchell suggests doesn't really he doesn't really have a good answer to that. Oh, it's just a bundle of compromises. And again, Scalia has relied on that again and again. But I don't love that approach in general. He does use one word that I just want to highlight as a matter of personal privilege, Jonathan Mitchell. He talks about textual analysis and intratextual analysis, because he's talking about how various words recur throughout the document, office, officer, and the like. That word, truthfully, was a word that I kind of invented. I coined, I wrote an article whose title 20 years ago was intratextualism, more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago in the Harvard Law Review. And it referred to the fact that words um, and phrases recur in the Constitution, and sometimes you want to try to make sense of the pattern. I mention it only because, you know, sometimes to be successful in law, you, you, you know, you, you try to coin little phrases that are shorthands, that are memes. Intratextual apparently has entered the lexicon. It was referred to by the Chief Justice, actually, in dissent in the Arizona redistricting case several years ago, and he actually subsequently, in effect, recanted that dissent in Moore versus Harper. So intratextualism, I guess, is now you know part of how lawyers talk, text, history, structure, intratextual, fine. What I was trying to do candidly this time around is introduce two additional phrases that would be really just sort of helpful in, in focusing the justices. The first insurrection of the 1860s, um, before Abraham Lincoln's inauguration, which bears a striking similarity to the events immediately before, during, and after January 6, 2021, and the 50-state solution. Those are similar efforts to try to coin a meme, so to speak, that becomes a useful sort of shorthand. Yeah, of course, the uh, first insurrection phrase didn't come up in this uh, oral argument, in part because the issue didn't come up as to whether or not Section 3 only applies to the Civil War (laughs) or as to whether or not January 6th was an insurrection on the scale that Section 3 requires. Of course, the, the point of the first insurrection is that it's very similar to January 6th. It was certainly top of mind to people that drafted Section 3. So therefore, this would address those questions. I mean, certainly it's possible that the argument was so convincing that uh, Mitchell chose not to raise it. And we could understand why he might not want to raise it, Obviously, we have no way of knowing whether he even read the brief. But if he did and the discussion went to how similar the first insurrection is to January 6th, that doesn't make his client look very good. So you can see where he wouldn't uh, really want to go there. So perhaps, you know, that's part. Who knows? As to the 50-state solution, well, they didn't use the meme, but they sure talked about the issue, but on the wrong side of the issue. So, um, So there you go. Now, we have another quote from Justice Gorsuch, which perhaps you might not look as favorably upon. So here we have Justice Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch? I haven't had a chance uh, to talk about the officer point, and I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. 
Um, Mr. Mitchell makes uh, the argument that, particularly in the Commission's Clause, for example, all officers are to be commissioned by the President, seems to be all-encompassing, that language. Um, and I'm curious your response to that. And along the way, if you would, uh, I, I, I poked a little bit at the difference between office and officer in the earlier discussion, you may recall. But I, I think one point your, your friends on the other side would make is, well, that's just how the Constitution uses those terms. So, for example, we know that the President pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House are officers of the United States because the Constitution says they are. But we also know that they don't hold an office under the United States because of the incompatibility clause that says they can't. So maybe the Constitution to us today, to a, a lay reader, might look a little odd in distinguishing between office and officer. Not prepositions, nouns, but distinction. But maybe that's exactly how it works. Thoughts? Well, I'd start with the idea that the, the meaning of officer in the 1780s was the same meaning that it has today, which is a person who holds an office. And, and certainly in particular contexts, like the Commission's Clause, it, it appears that that's referring, you know, that that is referring to a narrower class of officers, because we know that there are... Except it says all. Well, we know that there are classes of officers like the president pro tem, who, who don't get their commissions from the president. Well, that's because we, the Constitution elsewhere says that. We know that the appointments clause refers to a class of officers who get their appointment from the Constitution itself mm -hmm. rather than from presidential appointment. People who get their commissions from the president himself are not commissioned by the president. And so if you read the appointments clause in line with the commissions clause, then the commissions clause is really talking about the president's power. If one needs a commission, it's the president who grants it. But I think it's important to bring us back to Section 3 in particular, because that was 80 well, but before, years... Before we get to that, though, just the distinction between office and officer, do you, do you agree that the Constitution does make that distinction, particularly with respect to the Speaker and President Pro Tem? The Constitution makes that distinction, but the at least in Section 3, an officer of the United States is a person who swears an oath and holds an office. Now, the President Pro Tem and the Speaker of the House, they don't swear a constitutional oath in that capacity. They swear a constitutional oath if they are a senator or representative in Congress in that separate non-official capacity. But I think that You narrow, agree they are officers who don't hold an office? They're officers who, who may hold an office but don't swear an oath under Article 6 in that official capacity. Well, how can they hold an office under the incompatibility clause? It says they can't. Well, I, I think that's a fair point, and I think that that may be an exception to the general rule, and one might consider them perhaps officers of the House and Senate because they are appointed by those bodies and preside over those bodies. Well, no, the Constitution says they're officers of the United States. So, the, so there are some instances when you have an officer but not an office. There. Those may be an exceptional okay. circumstance, okay. but I would— Thank you. You're welcome. Maybe not your favorite uh, exchange— Wow, that was a train wreck. The attorney is a former law clerk to Justice Gorsuch, and he doesn't have the wit or wherewithal um, or maybe the knowledge to say, with all due respect, Your Honor, you just said something that's completely not true. I wrote an article about this in 1994, and it's about presidential succession, and, and this, is, <laughs> this is where this whole thing began, footnote 34 of that article. But he says, does Justice Gorsuch, at least twice, maybe three times in the clip, that 
Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem of the Senate, or officers in the United States. No, read the Constitution. doesn't say that at all. Here's, and you know it's complicated, it's a different Section 3, not of the 14th Amendment, but um, Article 1, Section 3. It says, the Senate shall choose their other officers, and also present pro tem. Okay, it's officers of the Senate, not of the United States. Here's what Article 1, Section 2 says. The House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers. So it's not officers of the United States, they're officers of the House of Representatives. Now, here's what's going on there. Officers are people who do things. Legislators just talk, okay? But officers do things. Now, the Speaker of the House, the, the leaders of the Senate, they do things within the House and Senate. They wield the gavel. They order the marshals around. But they don't do things to you and me. They're not officers of the United States. They, they can't lay hands on us the way a judge can or a military officer. So they're officers of the United States who actually operate on individuals. And then they're officers of each house. And it's not of the United States. And, and twice at least, Justice Gorsuch, who wants to be such a great textualist, is completely misquoting the Constitution. And the law clerk doesn't call him on that. And then just kind of starts, you hear him vamping and improvising, oh, maybe that's an exception or all the rest. So he'd had a good answer to Justice Jackson about, well, Section 3 says senators and representatives, because they're not officers, okay? They're, legislators are not officers. So you have to specify them. You have to specify presidential electors, because, you know, they're kind of just sui generis. They're just sort of ad hoc and exceptional. And then all the officers, all the offices, which are judicial and executive, all the way up to the president. So executive and judicial folks they're officers. They act on people. Legislators don't act on people. They just talk. Oh, but there are few people in the legislature who do act within the legislature. That's like the speaker and the president pro tem. Okay. So that's actually the correct analysis of, of the issues. And I talk about this in great detail in some of my earlier books and articles, but he didn't quite explain, you know, any, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that. a whopper. I mean, come on, let's call it what it is. Justice Gorsuch is saying the Constitution says doesn't say it. He's misquoting the Constitution. It's hard to imagine a twice, worse at least twice than that. At, you know, at least it's not hard to imagine because we just have to go back to Justice Gorsuch because it it's not it wouldn't be such a whopping mistake if he weren't such a narrow textualist where he relies on a certain word and w w without the larger structure. Right. So he says, oh, well, said, and this was his mistake in Moore versus Harper. He says, legislature, legislature can't mean the governor. Well, of course it means the governor, sometimes because for certain purposes, the governor is part of the legislature. In King versus Burwell, he was willing to invalidate the entirety of Obamacare because of a preposition. It said a, um, a health care plan, you know, by a state or of a state rather than for a state or something like that. And, and if you do that, I call this judging without judgment, focusing on little words. And so if you're going to do that, I think that's a mistake. At least get those words right. Now, I'm actually telling you how those words fit together. Now, here's what the, the, this, his former law clerk should have said, because they were talking about, well, you know, presidents don't have commissions and all officers have commissions. Well, 
oh, if only one of the amicus briefs had actually teed that up and given you the, the two-sentence answer. Oh, there was an amicus brief that did that. And, and the amicus brief said, ah, presidents don't have commissions, even though they are officers, because what's the commission? It's a piece of paper saying you're the power wielder and here's where when your power started. We don't need that for the president or the vice president because we have January 6th. That's what we called in the brief and what I had written 12 years ago in a book called America's Unwritten Constitution because I'm obsessed by these little weird things like that. Your commission equivalent. So that was the answer. And it was a good answer. It's a hard question because the Constitution isn't perfect. The question is how to make sense of it intratextually as a coherent whole so it's not completely contradicting itself. And just to repeat, the big, big distinction in early Anglo-American law and in English, in English law even before America is between legislators who basically say things, parliament from the French parler to speak, and they don't act in general. And on the one hand, then they have seats, but they're not quite officers. They have public seats, they're not public officers. And officers, civil and military, who do things, who, who act on people, who lay hands on other people. And those are judges and executive officials all the way up to and including a president who, of course, is a commander in chief and, and is oper- acting on other people, laying hands on them. George Washington gets on his horse, actually, in the Whiskey Rebellion as commander in chief, leads forces. Yes, I've been obsessed by these issues. But let me tell you the counter. It is true that on my theory, the Presidential Succession Act is very troubling because the kind of officer who should succeed to the presidency when there is a permanent or temporary vacancy because of a double death or disability should be, in effect, a true officer like a cabinet officer rather than Speaker of the House present pro tem the Senate. And Congress hasn't fixed that statute. Now, I'm not the first one to say that that was problematic. James Madison said that way back when. Here's the current statute, and it makes no sense. And let's, we'll go back to the West Wing. The current statute says that if a vice president is out of commission, he's resigned, let's say in a sex scandal, his name is Hoynes or something, and the president temporarily steps aside, let's call him Jed Bartlett, because his daughter is being held hostage and he can't actually allow the, the kidnappers to, as it were, hold a gun to his head and then therefore hold a gun to the country's head. So he steps aside. So now, under the statute, the Speaker of the House, who might be of the opposite political party, let's call him John Goodman, steps in. And that makes no sense because John Goodman is required by the current statute to leave his House seat and his speakership. And in that West Wing episode, Spoiler alert, I'm about to tell you what happens. Zoe is freed from her kidnappers. Jed Bartlett resumes the presidency. And now John Goodman is out of office. He's out of everything because he gave up his house seat. He gave up his speakership to do the virtuous thing. Now, none of that will happen. And and it makes no sense that you vote for Democrats and you get Republicans or that you vote for Republicans and you get Democrats, you vote for... And this, these were our early earliest episodes on the podcast. Yeah, well, we have the 18, so, 18 things that are wrong with it, or however many we got to. <laughs> um, Remember so, all the, all the um, things really, that were crazy about the Presidential Succession Act. Exactly. You know, all the, all, all the mistakes. But none of that would happen if we read officer sensibly to mean cabinet officer. So then 
if the president and the vice president are out of commission, perhaps only temporarily, it's the secretary of state or the secretary of defense who ex officio, that is by dint of his or her office, temporarily acts as president as ancillary to their other duties. And then when the president returns, the rightful president simply steps back and recedes and you don't have to abandon your position or anything else. So it is true. I want to say two things. I've actually thought about these things and have a coherent structural and intratextual account, which none of them have. They're just saying, well, maybe it doesn't make sense. No, they're actually, you know, things do make sense. But I admit that on my view, if you're really making sense of things, the Presidential Succession Act should not feature the House a Speaker of the House and President Pro Tem of the Senate at the top of the succession list. It should have cabinet officers. And of course, the previous incarnation of the Presidential Succession Act, which was in effect for a century or more, um, was did not have this problem. Um, uh, um, half a century, from 1887 or so until 1940. Yeah, okay, half so, a century. You know. Okay, yeah. thank you. Okay, all right, so enough Enough of office and office, please. <laughs> Enough. Oh, I, I, I hope that uh, that the that the opinion doesn't feature that. Oh, I hope that. And boy, Justice Gorsuch. Oh, well. Anyway, okay. So we're coming to the end of the argument, and just a couple of of points before we we're done. Questions about that came up in our brief, came up in the in the discourse, did come up briefly in the oral argument. And one was on questions of, uh, of due process. Did Donald Trump receive due process in Colorado? Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, the concerns of some question have been how, uh, the states having such power over uh, a national office. Uh, other questions about the different states having different standards of proof. And they seem underscored by uh, this case, at least the dissenting opinion uh, below Justice Samore. Uh, said, um, I've been involved, quote, I've been involved in the justice system for 33 years now, and what took place here doesn't resemble anything I've seen in a courtroom, end quote. And then added, quote, what transpired in this litigation fell woefully short of what due process demands, end quote. Now, I don't know whether I agree or not. I'm not going to take a position on that. But the, the fact that someone's complaining not about the bottom line conclusion, but about the very processes that were used in the state would seem to, and that that would be uh, permitted, seems to underscore the concerns that have been raised about state power. Just wanted to give you a chance to address that, because that was powerful language. Again, not disagreeing about the conclusion, but about the very fairness of the process. Yes, Your Honor, but that language was, with respect to Justice Samore, just not correct. President Trump had a five-day trial in this case. He had the opportunity to call any witnesses that he wanted. He had the opportunity to cross-examine our witnesses. He had the opportunity to testify if he wanted to testify. And, of course, the process was expedited because ballot access decisions are always on a fast schedule. But in this whole case, from the trial court all the way up to this court, President Trump has never identified a single process other than expert depositions that he wanted to have that he didn't get. He had the opportunity for fact witness depositions. He had the opportunity to call witnesses remotely. He didn't use all of his time at trial. There was ample process here. And this is how ballot access determinations in election cases are are decided all the time. So your thoughts on on this uh, due process discussion? I think that was a good answer by the attorney. Excellent. And, and he could have said one more thing, which is 
Your Honor, with due respect, you said you weren't going to get into whether it really was a due process violation or not, but, but that's actually the only proper federal question before you on this part of the case. If it's a violation of due process in the federal constitution, then you should say so. But it wasn't. And if it wasn't, that's uh, on this particular aspect, the end of your proper authority. Because states have broad discretion to structure their electoral college systems as they see fit, subject to overarching global um, constitutional principles such as due process, sex equality, and race equality. But other than that, your honors, it's not your call, and it is a decentralized federal process, even though, of course, who would deny it? The presidency is a national office, but it's a national office that's picked through a state-by-state -state process. And that's not because of this court's ruling in Chiafalo or anything else, as he said earlier, but because of the Constitution itself. Yeah, I might add on due process, I mean, the process that, that he discussed, that, that uh, Attorney Murray discussed, took place at the trial court level. And then you had an appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court, and they considered the question of due process. How do we know that? Because Justice mm -hmm. Samore wrote about it, and he got outvoted. Yep. So, right. so that was considered already. So yep. the due process right. of considering but, but, due but, process took place. Yes, but he, but if you thought that the majority was wrong and the dissent was right, that is your call. You get to decide that. But good luck in showing why this wasn't due process for all these reasons that I've I've identified. Mm -hmm. And and so then we're done with that. Okay. And another another question that came up, of course, which we alluded to earlier, is this over overriding question of democracy. And of course, we've talked about this at length. In our in our podcast, and I think we had a, a, quite a good discussion of it in our uh, episode about uh, the debate with Attorney General Judge Mukasey. But uh, they talked about it briefly, at least here. So, and again, it's Justice Kavanaugh and Attorney Murray. Last question: In trying to figure out what Section Three means, and kind of to the extent it's elusive language or vague language, what about the idea that um, we should think about democracy? think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice, uh, of letting the people decide, because your position has the effect of disenfranchising uh, voters to a significant degree. And should that be something, does that come in when we think about should we read Section 3 this way or read it that way? What about the background principle, if you agree, of democracy? I'd like to make three points on that, Justice Kavanaugh. The first is that constitutional safeguards are for the purpose of safeguarding our democracy, not just for the next election cycle, but for generations to come. And, and second, Section 3 is designed to protect our democracy in that very way. The framers of Section 3 knew from painful experience that those who had violently broken their oaths to the Constitution couldn't be trusted to hold power again because they could dismantle our constitutional democracy from within. And so they created a democratic safety valve. President Trump can go ask Congress to give him amnesty by a two-thirds vote. But unless he does that, our Constitution protects us from insurrectionists. And third, this case illustrates the danger of refusing to apply Section 3 as written, because the reason we're here is that President Trump tried to disenfranchise 80 million Americans who voted against him, and the Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance. Thank you. Okay, well, it was his last question, and it'll be ours as well. So your 
comment on that? It was a very good last answer that tracks very closely, frankly, the last question that um, we ask in our amicus brief and, and the answer that we give. So I, I like that. Truthfully, we had some other good answers in our amicus brief on other questions. I wish he had been as prepared with good, out, frankly, our good answers to those questions as he was to, to that one. It was a good question and a very good answer. And we wrote our 20 questions in part just as a cheat sheet for you know, the attorney just to say, you know, here's what you say on officer offices and what about the commission's clause and what about other states being bound by this and all the rest. We, we kind of walked through what the, the obvious right answers are. On that one, though, I thought he nailed it. Okay, well, so we'll await the opinion, and uh, I'm sure that we'll you know, have more to say on, on the case um, at that time or perhaps before. And uh, just want to give a shout-out to our audience who has really risen to the occasion in terms of <laughs> providing all sorts of commentary and questions and insights that we've read. We read all the questions that are submitted. We don't answer them all, but we do read them. And of course, a lot of the questions are not questions at all, but rather comments, and those are welcome as well. So we'll be back next week with more. Thank you, Akil. Thank you, Andy. <laughs>